Our ancestors traveled through salt and stars, and so do contemporary Pacific Islander communities today. In this podcast, we consider how to build good relations with the communities we come from in Oceania, the communities we live with here in the Salt Lake City area, and especially the indigenous communities whose lands we live on. As Pacific Islander people who live in Utah, we are nourished by the lands of the Ute, Goshute, Shoshone, and Paiute peoples. We are far from the ocean, but close to the salt water of the Great Salt Lake. We are far from the night sky over our home islands, but can look up and see the same stars. Join us as we explore and build relations of salt and stars. Relations of Salt and Stars is a new podcast produced by the Pacific Island Studies Program at the University of Utah and hosted by faculty members Dr. Angela L. Robinson, who's Chuck and myself, Dr. Miley Arvin, and I'm Kanaka Maui, or Native Hawaiian. With the name Relations of Salt and Stars, we invoke the ties historically forged between the Pacific Islands and Utah, as well as the ones still in formation. This is part two of our episode around gardens, what they teach us, the medicine they offer, and the connections they allow us to make between the lands we live on and our homelands. In part one of this episode, Angela shared her own stories of her mother's garden alongside some highlights of our recent event, Planting Good Relations, which featured a panel discussion with a number of Native American and Pacific Islander leaders who steward community gardens here in the Salt Lake City area. As we said in part one, this land is Ute, Goshute, Paiute, and Shoshone land. None of us are of these peoples. We all have homelands elsewhere. As we talk and think about gardening this land, we want to come into better relation with these peoples and this place. As you'll hear, many of our panelists are doing this work by offering medicine grown in these gardens to the community and by creating space for indigenous youth and families to find healing or to just be. In this episode, we highlight and offer brief responses to some of our favorite insights panelists shared. The whole panel offered so much love and wisdom to everyone present that we had to separate this episode into two parts. So you're listening to the second part, which I, Miley, am leading. And again, you can listen to the first part led by Angela by looking for it under our podcast name, Relations of Salt and Stars, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch a video of this panel or listen to the full audio of the panel on our YouTube page, The Pacifica Archive, with the handle at The Pacifica Archive 2650. Please check out the full bios and links to our panelists' organizations in the show notes of this episode to learn more about their work and how you can support it. You'll hear from Danae Shandine from Carry the Water Garden, Dee Platero and Michelle Brown with the Three Sisters Garden at the Ogwai People's Orchard and Garden, Lucia Satini from the Utah Pacific Islander Civic Engagement Coalition's Margarita Satini Mural and Garden, and Jake Fitisimanu with the Healthy Roots Program. We start here with some of their insights about their favorite things about gardening. Oh, my favorite thing about gardening, you know, it's just doing it. 
I think there's so much ancestral knowledge and memory that comes through it. Um, I remember the first time I grew blue corn, which we use for mush, some of our very traditional foods, and opening up each ear of corn and just seeing the beauty of those colors and how they congregate together. And then also learning that corn is two-spirit. Um, and just like the food, this beautiful thing in front of you, it's sacred, it feeds you, it nourishes you, it connects you to everything. It has this relationship with a lineage of all relatives that connect us to this beautiful thing that we pray to and eat and that nourishes us. So, But my favorite thing about gardening is harvesting. I love eating. <laughs> so that's my ultimate favorite when I get to harvest something and eat it and make delicious herbs. So that's my favorite. I have this vivid memory. Um, I was raised most of my life in Anchorage, Alaska, and it is kind of a strange place for <laughs> a Navajo to be, but very cool. But my favorite thing about gardening is just the soil there from my memory of being a child is so rich and having a garden in my backyard and all the little worms that I would catch and then I would save and then I would go fishing halibut with. So it was like those small creatures that were nourishing the food that I was growing in my backyard went on to go catch meat for me like mm. when I went deep sea fishing so that's just a really vivid memory for me of like that connection just to the earth itself whereas it didn't matter if it was just like coming from the land it went back into the water and then came back to me so I that's my favorite memory about gardening it's just it, it goes beyond just that so I was asked to be here um, on behalf of a family member so we have a a mural that sits at the Agoy Garden. And so um, one of my favorite things about that place is uh, just being reminded of my sister-in-law who uh, recently passed away from COVID. Um, and so um, <clears throat> being here, my connection with gardening, I think about um, my parents raising us to garden just in our backyard. Um, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm excited that I just grew some tomatoes. I'm sure that's nothing compared to <laughs> to what all of you guys are all doing, but um, mm -hmm. that was something exciting for me. Mm -hmm. So we talk about gardening and understanding what vegetable or herb, what it does. Um, I get excited to learn about that. Healthy Roots is a program that we've been running through the Pacific Islander Coalition for almost six years now. And it started with uh, a pretty selfish, uh, self-serving uh, motive, which was our foods are sometimes hard to get here. And when they do get here, they've survived weeks on a ship and sometimes they're not that great or they're coated in wax or they're, and they're expensive. And, um, and which is why our people would eat a lot of canned foods actually and preserved foods. And, and that's not, great for nutrition in the end. And that's not what our ancestors ate. That's not our indigenous food ways. And so um, a few uh, of us really wanted to just try it here. We knew the growing season was short, as was mentioned. We knew the soil was different, that the composition. So we kind of nerded out and we went out and said, who can help us? And we called into gardening shows. We got folks from Utah State Master Garden Program to help us. We went to our own elders in the community who know how to grow these things back home. And, and started 
pretty small scale with about three families. Uh, and the next year that turned into 10, and the next year turned into 25, and the next year we had a uh, commitment with or a contract with um, Wasatch Community Gardens, which was now giving us space because a lot of our folks live in the urban areas or apartments and don't have that space. And uh, then we started taking it to people's backyards. And long story short, this summer, uh, this year, we had 52 families uh, that were engaged in this. And they're not only growing tomatoes and corn and, and the great, um, you know, things that are meant to grow here or that have been growing here in this climate, but we're growing taro we're growing tapioca, we're growing turmeric, we're growing banana trees, we're growing hibiscus, we're growing lao tea, we're growing sweet potatoes. Um, things that our people will eat because we don't eat kale and we don't eat <laughs> celery and, and you know some of these other things. Uh, and not because they're not good, but because the, we're not familiar and they, we don't have recipes already with these things built in. Uh, and so I, I don't follow directions well. I didn't even answer the prompt question earlier, but to, to that, that's the, my favorite part of being with this. And I'm not a master gardener either, um, but when I see people, uh, one of my favorite things is when I see people in West Valley, right here, uh, where I live and where I serve on the city council, uh, I love people rolling down my street, 4250, uh, and sort of taking it slow and looking out their window like, are those banana trees? <laughs> <laughs> are those really, you know, eight foot tall sugarcane and, you know, and growing in front of the house? And there are 52 other families this year that are doing the exact same thing. What folks shared regarding their favorite things about gardens, as you heard, often invoked ideas about home, whether that meant one's ancestral homelands, where, where we may have been displaced to or otherwise chosen to live now, our family, our community, or, in a much broader sense, Earth itself. I've lived in Salt Lake City for a long time, um, most of my life. And um, really trying to return back home in a lot of ways, in myself, here, in my home, my community, but also returning back to my ancestral lands where my grandmothers grew up. Um, plants that we see nowadays, like especially maybe in these areas, like, oh, this plant's interesting. Um, it's not from here. It's beautiful when I'm planted here. Um, and that's done some damage with, you know, the whole landscape as in the bigger picture um, with like invasive species. But I had a, a, a relative, a sister from the Bachanga Los Enos band um, in California. And she was talking, there's a lot of invasive plants in California. Um, that take over their traditional medicines. But when she was talking about it, she talked about it in a way of empathy. Like, these plants are also so very much displaced from their homeland. And, like, look at them thrive and survive. And when I think about what it means for displaced relatives, even um, being uh, like a climate refugee. So many of us are climate refugees. Um, so many of our homelands have been destroyed. Uranium, coal, um, water contamination, um, like that gold key mine that was built into the San Juan um, that ruined farming for years for our, our relatives. Um, 
And so I think bringing in the medicine that you need in your space is like reclaiming that and also like healing that part of you, that connection to home that you don't have access to and that hurts. Like it hurts for everybody. And I think there's like a beautiful grace in that and like thanking the land. Like you provide something for my traditional foods to grow and like really thinking it, like thanking the land for doing that for you. Um, everybody needs it personally, but I think collectively it is more interesting when we feed off of one another and we do have those teachings and, and being moved and honored by like you honoring your, your relatives who you miss that grief. The process of like planting something and having that grow, there's that, the healing capabilities for your spirit and your mind in that is far more effective in my opinion than like the therapy, this shitty healthcare system that we have, um, all these bigger structures that harm us. Like that's, it's so simple. And I love that simplicity. I'll just give some of my personal thoughts, but gardens are the solution for permaculture. Um, I know that Ogwai started as an act of civil disobedience um, to reclaim like land itself or like re-nourish it, what it could be. Um, to me, it has been transformative, at least for myself. I've become more interested in gardening and relating and also just as a person, again, just <coughs> embracing the connections between my body, the plants I eat, the people I communicate with, and my community as a whole. It's made me feel more like a earthling <laughs> than just a human being. So um, I'm just honestly just excited to see what happens. I know that this garden is relatively new, but I just imagine or envision it taking up the entire Jordan River right there, but we'll see. One word that kept coming up during the panel was medicine. Gardens produce medicine that we can share Medicine here being something much more expansive than what it means in a Western biomedical sense. The medicine discussed here works toward healing many different kinds of hurts. A tabling event a couple months back at a powwow in Tooele and you know Tom brought some sweet grass with him, put it on the table and we had like our brochures and flyers to educate the community about the issues that are still ongoing with murdered and missing indigenous relatives and there was a mother who came up to to look at the brochures and all the information but the plants sitting there really like captured her attention which was amazing that it was even there to begin with and she we started talking about the plant she was like is this for sale and i was like no this is actually like was grown in the ogwai garden it is a, it's medicine you can take it it's not for sale it is for free for you to take and she's like are you serious and I was like yes and she was telling me how she's going to use that in her beadwork and how she's mm -hmm. going to create something more from that like she was like I'm not going to burn this I'm actually going to integrate it into my jewelry and my beading and so I thought that was really beautiful like I feel like nature itself is like a work of art the way things start to emerge on their own and have their own like tendencies and it's really incredible to see how 
like us as, as indigenous people find so many uses for that like to be able to see like jewelry or artwork that depicts the plants that we pull from and that are our lifeblood and our stories is really powerful um, to see it splayed in different places so um, we've also had <coughs> the ability to have a couple of different organizing events at the Ogwai as well. Last year we did um, sage pulling, sweetgrass braiding, and just binding. That was really a powerful event as well. And I think that was maybe close to when the margarita mural was finished and that was an incredible event to attend. So I feel incredibly grateful to that tie back to community and the ability to share outside of that and to invite people to know that that's available to them. Um, and just to share like as much knowledge as possible. It's been really impactful to me about the garden or you know what Tom has provided us where we have an opportunity to do this is learn and practice like indigenous teachings, which I didn't have a space before. And even if I had you know my own space at home, it's not the same. It's, it's bringing together as a community, braiding sweetgrass together, and learning how about just these plants that we're growing is really beautiful. And just to share a fun story, um, we did an MMIW event and planted the garden, and we took some tea home with sweet grass and tobacco, and just little seedlings. Um, I will say that I'm really glad my tobacco is still alive, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just on the way home, someone noticed my jacket, and I had taken some extra tea and some seedlings, and her aunt had just died like two days beforehand. And it was just really wonderful that I got to just in that moment share the medicine from this garden with her that I had just <coughs> had by chance. Mm -hmm. And it's just those kinds of moments where you realize that there are so many people who are connected. We're all connected in so many beautiful ways, but it's just there for us. And this is an opportunity that I've had to reach out and connect with other people in a way that I haven't been able to do in any other kind of setting. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I love that. Receiving. When someone gives me medicine, like it really, I can't explain the feeling. Like it's just, just like thank you. It's like another it's, type of deeper love. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like thank you for seeing me, and I did need this, and it's so special to me. And it goes beyond any kind of material. It's just, yeah, we need more of that. And I think those spaces allow you to like act that way. You know, in other spaces we code switch or we change, you know, do all these other things, but to practice being sacred with one another and like really being aware of those things, like you need this. I want to give this to you, you know? Exactly. Well, I think it's been really amazing to kind of see like a wave of a lot of like indigenous peoples coming back to their ways. I think colonization has done so much damage and I've seen a lot of like this younger generation coming back through the curiosity of like the medicines, um, traditional medicines and how to use them and how to, to grow them. And so I think like for instance, just me being able to show my five-year-old like how to smudge or how to use like the actual medicine um, in the proper way has been really satisfying to me. But I think like I've met so many young indigenous people who have been kept from their traditional beliefs and traditional ways, whether that be through colonization directly or through religious um, um, 
reasons and missing out on many traditions that they should be entitled to, but being dissuaded by religion itself. Um, I've, I feel like a lot more um, indigenous youth are sharing those types of stories. And I think the gardens have been ways to like reconnect with the ways of knowing um, and a path back to tradition in ways as an adult you can freely do and express Whereas a lot of um, these youth or young adults had like been suppressed from that, whether through like a parent or whether through like an adoptive system where they weren't able to really practice their traditional beliefs. I think that's been really powerful and that's been incredible to see. So I think like other indigenous gardeners showing the next generation the way forward has been really powerful and just new ways of doing things that it doesn't have to be a huge garden. It can be as simple as a single pot in your house and start with that and start with that medicine. Um, I think social media has been really incredible for indigenous peoples in terms of learning and how to learn from another, whether you're on the different side of the world has been really incredible. Um, I know even just with experience with Jen and her working with a collective called Canoe Journey in Seattle, like hey, what, what is this, like, tea? How am I supposed to, like, they sent it to us, and I'm like, how am I supposed to make it into tea? Like, how much water? Like, how much this or that? Do you guys have seeds? I really like this, so I'd like to make it myself. So those types of things are just reconnecting with um, our communities and learning about other indigenous communities that I wasn't so familiar with has been really incredible. Um, I'm really grateful for that, and just to be able, the ability to share what I do know, or you know, even just oral um, storytelling of things that I remember, like off of my father's reservation, being able to like stop at the side of the road and pick up Indian tea, take it home, dry it for the amount of time that was right, and then you know, make myself and my sisters a cup of tea. Like mm -hmm. that, to me, is just such a an incredible memory. Like the smell itself, whenever I smell it now. I can see all those moments that have passed. So I really appreciate that. And I think like working with um, other like elders and just those who already know the way, they're not gonna be here forever. So I think gaining that knowledge has been really um, incredible and I'm just uh, grateful for that and continue to share as much knowledge as I have with anyone that I may connect with, but also with my son. So, I really love that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's turning into, like, you know, this panel and this discussion about kinship and relationships. Um, anybody who has actually come willingly to that space has been so respectful. They understand um, the things that we need and require to go on in a good way. Um, a lot of us are displaced from our families, you know, living in these urban environments, from our homelands, from the medicine that grows there. The soil here is very different to a lot of the traditional foods that would grow and nourish us, um, and also connect us back to our identities and who we are, um, especially for our children. Um, and I think we're just in that time where we really crave that medicine. Um, it's been taken from us, but there are so many ways that we can just be the work for ourselves 
and to facilitate that. It hasn't been easy um, because of personal things. You know, like everyone who is involved in the garden right now, like we're all going through so much, just like I imagine everybody else. Um, but sticking with that medicine and however it grows into that, uh, I think we're just being really flowy and forgiving and not pushing things. Um, and just really honoring where we're at and really understanding and being so grateful to the land for being patient with us. You know, we haven't really grown very much there. Um, there were a few things, but and that was a big disappointment because we had like all these big ideas coming into it. Like, this is what we want now. This is what we need now. But we've been humbled because of all these outside forces and influences that kind of prevent us from being who we are and what we want to do. Um, we're just realizing that it's okay and it's taking some time. There are other things that we want to be in relationship with besides the plants that teach us. The plants that teach us how to be in relationship with one another and everybody's needs and how they come together so it's kind of like family, it's going back to these traditional teachings, like in our way, the Hogan is our universe. Uh, we have different relatives that circle around that fireplace, and there are no rooms in our Hogans. And so in that way, I'm like in my family, I'm able to see the pains, the struggles, the needs, the love, the care, I'm aware as a relative of what's going on with each individual and I, th I think about that structure with the garden too and whoever comes in mm. like what's going on in your life like I want to support that I want to and the garden's here to help nourish you what kind of medicine do you miss please like I invite you to just like grow that there you have that sovereignty I want it to be that space for it and um, I really hope it grows into it. I don't think it's a lot to ask for. Um, but yeah, we just really want a beautiful, safe place to gather and have ceremony. We want sweat lodge there. We want to be surrounded by our medicine. Um, and just come in and be ourselves. The panel particularly shared some personal stories of how community gardens have helped with processing grief and other trauma. As I mentioned before, Margarita, she was uh, one of the founders for UPASEC, which is the Utah Pacific Islander Civic Engagement Coalition, which is a, connected heavily with our, we're all connected with the Health Coalition. And we don't grow um, in all four seasons. We're very tropical. And so <laughs> when you go to the garden, there's a raised um, garden bed, and you'll see some tropical flowers there. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for healthy roots um, bringing that um, and that space brings a lot of self-care just a place to reflect to bring peace to process grief um, just not only for our family members but also the community so when we talk about these spaces that's what what it has provided for us mm -hmm. yeah. our old folks have been watching the stars this past uh, this week Wednesday, just a couple of days ago, 
um, the Matali'i, which is an important constellation that marks our harvest season, um, rose for the first time this year at sunset, which means that next Thursday, which is the new moon after the rising of Matali'i, is our new year. This is our harvest and our, our bountiful season. Um, it doesn't look like it here in Utah, but in Samoa and in Tonga and other places in the Pacific, they're celebrating their First Fruits Festival next Thursday, and I'm really happy and grateful for our partners here that will be doing the same in this very building and out here uh, watching the new moon and the stars rise next Thursday or next Wednesday, right? And um, presenting those fruits. And so uh, we present them to our families, to our chiefs, to our ancestors, including Rita, uh, who we... Uh, she's an ancestor now. We'll be presenting to her. And uh, that's my, actually my favorite part about the gardening is that the plants teach us. The plants in our culture are, they have stories, they have genealogies. Um, there are certain vegetables that are our ancestors that we descend from. And it's cool to work with these kids at the Granite School District and, and teach them not just about the nitrogen cycle and all these cool, you know, biological photosynthesis, um, but also remind them, like, oh, we have an actual connection. Our genealogy links us to these plants, and they nourish us not just physically, but spiritually. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do on a small scale. We're mm -hmm. um, we got a good amount of money. Um, and our goal with the grant, because we do a lot of um, missing and murdered work or responding to that violence, um, we wanted to do, first of all, that work is really hard. Um, and this relates to gardening. Gardening, being in community with your relatives who see you, who already understand you, who recognize you as a person, as a spiritual being, without um, these titles, um, without like these credentials. Um, they're just our relatives, especially our youth and our elders and their caretakers and how they take care of, you know, that in-between stage of those life periods. Um, we struggle a lot in our communities because of colonization. You know, it's given us a lot of violence to deal with in our bodies. We are also perpetuators of violence in ourselves um, onto our relatives. And we saw the garden being a program for youth to connect with ancestral teachings as a violence prevention measure for sexual violence and the big one, the umbrella one, um, which is missing and murdered violence. And all those things, the displacement from land, um, resource extraction, climate chaos, um, the domestic violence, the sexual assault, all these different things fit underneath missing and murdered violence. And so it's hard always responding to the crisis because it's ongoing ongoing um, and so we really needed a place to just like be ourselves in that space um, I needed that I was in a place where I you know suffering from depression suicidal ideations feeling the pain um, being re-traumatized by um, you know, I lost my auntie, she was murdered. I have a relative here, Shannon Scott, 
she's Kitmatini, so she's my father's clan, or my great, uh, my grandfather's clan. So we're relatives, and I found her through the garden, um, and we met there, and we made that connection. And she's my family. She, um, Shannon Scott was murdered, and sh she had two babies, um, and like having those babies there and recognizing them, like getting down on the ground and looking at them and just like holding them. Uh, it's like the hard, I know how hard it is. I know the manifestations of like that trauma and how it goes into like your life. I saw it with my sister, Samantha. She was three months old when she lost her mother. And that's in her body. Um, and it's manifested into all these like other health things. Food, um, whether our re relatives are responsive to it. You know, sometimes we can be like, oh, this will heal you, this will heal you, yoga will heal you, just being in the community or um, growing something's going to heal you. Some people aren't at that place. Um, I'm not at that place a lot of the time. Like, I don't have the energy to do that. Like, no, I need this things first. But the growing things, and just being yourself, however you show up, however you're affected by colonization, however that you want to heal, um, that space should be for you. And making those connections is a huge safety net for our young ones especially. Um, I think it's really important to be aware of how they need to feel safe in a world that's getting really more chaotic and violent and confusing and encroaching in on us in every single way. So establishing spaces that, one, it is like a distraction, but it's the best kind of distraction because it's returning back to our ways. Um, and we're adapting, we, our indigenous people have adapted for time immemorial to our environments and to different relations. And I think in those ways, through prayer, we can really see together how to heal these things. Um, because we do embody so much knowledge. And I think that needs to be recognized. We are the experts of our own realities and our hurts and our pains. And it should be us who who guide that process. Denise ended her remarks with a beautiful invitation to the Carry the Water Garden, and the other speakers also shared how to get involved with the Ogwai's, Ogwai People's Orchard and Garden, as well as the Healthy Roots Program. I like to say that anybody who wants to be a part of like the carry the water, um, it's your garden. You can do whatever you think that's going to take care of you and your relatives. If you're missing a medicine in your life and you want to share the abundance of that, like please come and grow that. That space is yours to do. Um, and just wanting it to be a safe space. You can go whenever you want to. Like, 
all ideas and all those things. And I think that's where we are at. Um, we did have a clear vision, but I think the capacity, personal things that came up um, this past year, we've all gone through some crazy things, crazy, hard, hard things. And so, um, however you want to show up in any capacity, like this yours, the lens there. love you all and in being awareness of you and being in relationship with you my gut we're able to take care of each other in different ways so, and that's really important to me I mean social media is great so you guys can follow the OY they have a Facebook page and then also an Instagram as well and Pandos regularly plugs um, their links on there it's I think it's Saturday mornings typically or Sundays Sundays, Sundays sorry that um, volunteers can go and can be a part of the garden depending on what is going on during that season um, but yeah everyone is welcome you can find us on Facebook Oguay um, Garden um, and Oh, it's like the Oguay Garden and People's Orchard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not too far from here. It's fairly close. Yeah. Yeah. Our acronym for the Utah Pacific Islander Health Coalition is UPIHC.org, and that's the best place to reach us. Um, and also to learn about all the other great programming that we have outside of the Healthy Roots program. But we do, um, especially in the springtime, um, as we're distributing these seedlings that students have grown around the valley uh, to upwards of 50 families, right? We always appreciate volunteers on, on that plant distribution day. We don't have a great name for that, but, um, and yeah, if you have experience or, you know, any tips for backyard gardening or small-scale gardening, um, we're always uh, looking for folks to help consult with as well. I want to end this episode by sharing my own gardening story, which was the first story I ever wrote for the podcast format back in July 2020, as Angela and I were learning how to create podcasts. I hope you hear the resonance I do between my story and the themes that our Planting Good Relations panelists spoke about, including gardens as healing and feeding, as spaces of processing intergenerational trauma and other forms of colonial violence. when it was a territory. She was six years old when Hawaii became a state in 1959. Many Americans might think of Hawaii as only a beautiful vacation destination. However, the Hawaiian Kingdom was an internationally recognized independent country before a cadre of white American and British settlers overthrew the Hawaiian government in 1893. The U.S. federal government, though they did not initially sanction the overthrow, officially annexed Hawaii in 1898, and Hawaii became an official U.S. territory in 1900, which is the same status Puerto Rico has today. My mother's grandmothers were fluent in the Hawaiian language, but especially after Hawaii became a state, they only spoke in Hawaiian to each other. My mother's father asked them not to speak to his children in Hawaiian so that they would grow up speaking good English. During the pandemic, like many others, I have found solace in gardening. My daughter was six months old when the pandemic started, 
and the isolation and sleep deprivation of those early days with the newborn was compounded by the inability of any of our family to travel to see us and help. It helped being able to take my daughter outside and sit her on a blanket in the shade while I weeded the garden and checked for ripe tomatoes. Another solace of the pandemic has been taking Hawaiian language classes online from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I live in Utah, so there are no Hawaiian language classes I can go to here. Often now, I weed my garden while listening to an assigned Hawaiian language recording. I think about how learning a language is a practice, a constant practice, that must be attended to again and again, just like gardening and weeding. There is some peace for me in trusting the need to practice to show up again and again even or especially when it is hard and there are no guaranteed results. Maybe a bird will eat these strawberries. Maybe the squash plant won't grow. Maybe I will forget this word. Maybe my pronunciation is horrible today. All I can do is keep practicing, keep tending the plants that are here. One of my Hawaiian language recordings is about an elder Hawaiian woman talking about her first time going to school. She remembers her first day of school when the teacher calls her during roll call, but she doesn't answer because she doesn't recognize her English name. When she doesn't answer, the teacher slaps her. She is shocked and turns around to another student, a Japanese girl. She asks her in Japanese, what does this teacher want? The Japanese girl answers in Japanese, and she too is slapped by the teacher. There are so many stories like this from Hawaiian people who grew up in the territorial period. Hawaiian language was banned in all schools, essentially from the time of the overthrow and officially through the 1980s, around the time that Hawaiian language immersion schools started. My current research looks at the institutions that were called training schools or industrial schools, but were effectively prisons for Native Hawaiian and other children of color in Hawaii during the territorial period. Children were sent to these institutions officially for committing crimes. The most frequent charges for boys were petty theft and truancy, for girls sexual immorality, which could mean anything from they were seen associating with boys to they were pregnant out of wedlock. Before the arrival of Western missionaries, Native Hawaiians did not adhere to a monogamous legalized forms of marriage. My ancestors valued gender complementarity rather than patriarchal hierarchy. These training schools then worked effectively to forcibly assimilate Native Hawaiians into white American cultural norms, including norms around gender and sexuality. Children were often kept at these institutions for years at a time until they became adults or the girls for the girls when they married. Social scientists blame Native Hawaiians' families' backwardness and stupidity for not being able to raise their children right. At these training schools, which were located in rural spots distant from the perceived ills of urban Honolulu, 
the children were required to work in the gardens and dairies on the school grounds that provided most of the food for the institution. The boys additionally were hired out to nearby sugar and pineapple plantations, effectively without pay. I wonder what they thought about this work of producing food, either for themselves or for export, if it was ever a solace to them to carefully tend to a plant, or if it just reminded them of how much they missed the care of their families. Today, the site of the girls' school in Kailua remains a Hawaii youth correctional facility, and perhaps fittingly, some of the ruins of the boys' school at Waile'e have been turned into an illicit skate park. The North Shore Land Trust is also working to restore the Lo'ikalo, the terraces where the taro was grown at the boys' school. Kalo in its mashed, fermented form, poi, was the traditional staple of the Hawaiian diet, so much so that our word for to eat, ai, also means poi. My daughter and I were not able to visit Hawaii where my mom still lives this summer because of the ongoing pandemic. But as I work in our garden, I think about these intertwined practices of caring for plants, language, and children. My daughter is now two years old, almost three, and she does not have an English name. Already her daycare teachers want to call her something else sometimes. I will always correct them. Olili Noi Kona Inoa. Her name is Lily Noi. Our theme song is Lift Me Up by Hadium. Special thanks to our panelists, Danae Shandine, Licia Satini, Michelle Brown, Dee Platero, and Jake Fitusi Manu Jr. Thanks to our hosts at the Tracy Aviary Jordan River Nature Center, CEO Tim Brown, co-directors Marissa Beckstrom and Daniel Hernandez, and other Nature Center staff. Our thanks also to Kehalani Vaughn, Pauline Fomua, and Lorelai Pope for organizing this event with us. Also, we thank our sponsors, the Mellon Foundation, the University of Utah's School for Cultural and Social Transformation, and the University of Utah's College of Humanities. This has been Relations of Salt and Stars with hosts Miley Arden and Angela Robinson. Follow the University of Utah Pacific Island Studies program on Instagram at UofUPI Scholars. Mahalo nui loa for listening. Join us next time.